welcome to episode 27 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics with your hosts, Peter Alegi and Peter Lim. Our special guest today is Professor Robert Hitchcock, Chair of Anthropology at Michigan State University. Professor Hitchcock has worked extensively with indigenous peoples across Africa. He's worked with sand peoples in Botswana and Namibia, as well as in Zimbabwe. And in addition, he's worked with indigenous peoples in North and Central America and East Africa. He has published extensively on these topics, including recent books entitled Hunters and Gatherers in the Modern World, Endangered Peoples of Africa and the Middle East, and has several forthcoming books on such topics as the Nyanyai communities in Namibia and genocide in indigenous peoples. He also will be publish a book from Michigan State University Press later this year on the Sadillo Hills of Botswana. Professor Hitchcock is also a member of the board and past co-president of the Influential Kalahari People's Fund, an advocacy organization providing assistance to San Nama and other peoples of Southern Africa. As well, he's a member of the panel of environmental experts for the Lesotho Highlands Water Project, the largest water project in Africa. Well, it's my very great pleasure to welcome Professor Robert Hitchcock, who's Chair of Anthropology here at MSU uh, and a leading specialist on the San of uh, Botswana and Namibia. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much. And uh, my co-host. Peter Alegi, also in the room. And I'm Peter Lim. Uh, Bob uh, Hitchcock, perhaps we could start with um, just your thoughts on the current situation of the San peoples in in, in Botswana and across the, the border in Namibia. You've worked for a long time there, and especially in the area of Nyanyai. But um, if we look at the predicament, say, of the San people with regard to relocations and diamond mining, uh, what's their current position? Well, the current position is that San, who in Botswana number about between 50 and 55,000, um, are struggling a bit in terms of uh, their socioeconomic well-being. Um, they're in about 65 settlements across Botswana, which are provided with services by the government. Um, they have water, they have health, assist health assistance, they have schools. Um, but there are a number of, of uh, situations in which the San feel that they're not getting the same rights as other people. And this is with respect partly to relocation where they don't really have uh, defined rights to land. The government has a policy that, is that every individual has rights to land according to the Constitution. But um, many San uh, have been told by government officials and others that they have to move. Um, and this particularly was the case in the central Kalahari where about uh, 1,200 1,400 people were moved out between 1997 and 2002. They won a legal case in December of 2006 uh, to restore their rights, the right to return. Uh, they also had the right uh, to hunt. Uh, and People have gone back into the central Kalahari, perhaps 100, but um, they haven't been uh, given the rights to hunt. Uh, they're still um, receiving a fair amount of, of uh, mistreatment in their eyes by uh, uh, police and, and, and others um, when they go into the central Kalahari. Um, 
and they don't have access to water there, uh, which is a huge issue in terms of survival. So overall, I'd say that uh, uh, the San in general are, are doing better than they were uh, years ago, in part because of Botswana government assistance, um, but they're still impoverished and they're still struggling in terms of rights, uh, in, in terms of uh, government recognition, uh, for example, in leadership and that kind of thing. And uh, it's the old saying, diamonds are forever, but perhaps not in Botswana, they're running out. And to yeah. what extent can diamonds, for you mentioned the central Kalahari and there's diamonds there, to what extent can we explain the government of Botswana's past policy and its, uh, often its irritation with, with support groups uh, who have raised the question of removal from traditional lands, to what extent uh, is, is, diamond, uh, is the diamond wealth a major factor here? I personally don't think that the diamond wealth is a major factor. I think that diamonds certainly were, were cited as a reason by uh, various organizations uh, as to why people were, were removed from the central Kalahari. I think there are larger issues at play, some of which has to do with the conservation uh, dimensions of the, of the central Kalahari as a protected area, some of which has to do with tourism. Um, and diamonds certainly play a role in the well-being of Botswana. They're currently not mining diamonds except recovering some perhaps from the tailings of Arapa and Juaneng, the big diamond mines. Um, and part of the reason for that is that they have a fairly sizable stockpile. Diamonds are not selling that well in the world market given the economic crisis currently. Uh, they do have plans to exploit an area around Hope in the southeastern central Kalahari for uh, diamonds, although that may be slowed. Um, one of the issues I think that's of concern that I've just heard about recently uh, is that the Botswana government is hoping to put a railway across from Francistown to Walvis Bay on the Namibian coast uh, and that'll go right through the central Kalahari. The big question will be doing an environmental impact assessment, a social impact assessment, uh, what, are the, what are going to be the effects of that. And the next question is, uh, and, and many San have said they want this, is they would like rights to minerals, um, or at least to the, some of the benefits of minerals. Now this is a very contentious issue uh, internationally. Um, and in Botswana, the government says that, that diamonds and other uh, subsurface minerals are a, a national resource and that, that goes to the state. The state then spends the money on assistance programs. And this points to uh, the underlying conflict in many ways in Botswana between the government and San peoples uh, over the question of, of assimilation versus human rights, if you want to simplify it in many ways, right? Because it seems that the Botswanan government's position is, right, we're providing social welfare uh, to uh, San people, uh, they have the same rights as everybody else in the country, uh, but that's certainly not how the San people perceive uh, right. the situation, right? They see themselves as fighting for human rights, and they don't see too many advantages in the kind of assimilation proposed by, by the government. There's a quote from one of your articles that I picked up on that kind of captures the, the, the paternalism, if you will, even the condescension of, of, of this well-meaning Botswana government. There's a minister who who's quoted as saying, uh, we as the government simply believe that it is totally unfair to leave a portion of our citizens undeveloped under the pretext that we are allowing them to practice their culture. Right? He says, what we want to do is to enable them to partake of the development cake of the country. 
Um, again, that's not the sound's perspective, I think, on, on, on many issues. Uh, can, you, can you expand on this idea of national rights versus ethnic rights versus human rights a little bit? Yeah, I think that um, San and Botswana would like what they define as human rights. They'd like cultural rights. They'd like the right to practice their own culture, which means to speak their own mother tongue languages. The Botswana government's policy currently is that uh, the languages taught in the schools are English and Setswana. Um, this is a contentious area. There's been a lot of debate about this on the part of minority groups within Botswana, Bakalahati, Kalanga, Hombukush, Baye, as well as the San. Um, and so part of this debate revolves around cultural rights and is tied into education the right to education in their own culture. They would like curricula to be developed that, that speak to um, the San history, to uh, San societal um, factors, to um, San leadership kinds of things. And uh, there is a general feeling among San that they, uh, they're being assimilated not along the lines of what they prefer. They would like to be, they, they would like development, they'd like access to water, they'd like access to uh, um, land, um, but at the same time they would like to be able to, uh, in those areas where they do have settlements, practice their own culture and have the same rights as others. They don't feel in many cases that that's uh, what's going on with respect to the government or to uh, local institutions in the government, district councils, for example. How would you compare it with perhaps uh, villagization schemes uh, such as the, the Ujamaa schemes in Tanzania that uh, James Scott and, and others mm. have written about or maybe in Ethiopia or, or elsewhere in the world? These are certainly villagization schemes. These remote area settlements, um, of which as I mentioned there are probably 65 or 70, um, are essentially uh, schemes that have water and development assistance, meaning physical and social infrastructure, schools, health posts, uh, community uh, centers. Uh, they don't have uh, any means of livelihood. In many cases, the size of these settlements is, uh, is relatively restricted, um, five by five uh, miles, for example. And if you think a, a group that's hunting and gathering probably needs 10 or 15 times that uh, to survive. So they're, they're really constrained in terms of job opportunities. So on the one hand, uh, the government's policy is definitely a settlement and resettlement, villagization. Uh, many people would prefer to have uh, the option of moving where they wish, be able to move around the landscape if they had the opportunity had the chance, uh, they don't want necessarily to be confined uh, to specific settlements. Looking at the cultural dimensions of this, um, you mentioned tourism earlier and you also mentioned the dilemmas of language policy and uh, relating these back to the dwindling resource of diamonds, Botswana needs to develop new sources of income and tourism has been uh, an important one in the past, especially with the Okavango, but you, you have been working on the Cedillo Hills and there's this whole question of the cultural heritage of rock art, Alec Campbell you hosted here recently. And so I wonder if uh, one of the ways in which the bottleneck, so to speak, uh, between indigenous peoples, although that term is controversial and not accepted by the Botswana government, they say everyone is an indigenous person, but the, 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 the irritation of the government with San um, 
priorities. Uh, in an earlier article, you spoke about the need for the SAN to develop intergroup coalitions. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there is potential in, on the cultural front for SAN peoples maybe to, to broker new arrangements with the government and civil society and so that the incredibly rich uh, cultural resources that they that they and their ancestors have been involved with could be used in a in a way for a win-win situation. Is that on the on the horizon? Do you I think, think it is on the horizon, and for a number of reasons. One of which is government policy, particularly with respect to community-based natural resource management and tourism policy. Uh, the government allows people in in the communal areas of the country, the tribal areas, which represent about 71 percent of the of the. Uh, country's overall land to get rights over specific uh, wildlife resources in, um, in so-called wildlife management areas. And they are, in a number of cases, establishing um, tourism operations. It's some of it's cultural tourism. If they, people go to the Sedillo Hills, for example, they can visit the Xinhua village there. Uh, they can also visit a Hambukush village. They participate in, in uh, uh, tourism activities, taking people out on guided walks, selling crafts. This generates quite a bit of income for local people. So uh, many San do see tourism as a, as a really important source of support. Um, they also see farming, livestock production, uh, and other things, uh, regular uh, formal sector jobs is important at the same time. But um, I think that tourism represents for many San a, a, a useful way to A, generate income, and also to form coalition, coalitions, because they are doing that through these community-based resource management groups. Um, there are national level organizations that work with them. There are outside agencies, internet, uh, the World Conservation Union, IUCN, uh, in the past, the Dutch, the Americans and others working on uh, tourism, community-based resource management. And so this has been a, uh, an opportunity for many San to participate in the larger economy, but also to uh, work on um, things like uh, uh, training with respect to leadership, uh, capacity building in, in, in local institutions that manage resources. If we slip across the border into Namibia, is the situation much different? I mean, you have done considerable work in Nyai Nyai. Uh, what, what, uh, how could we compare and contrast Botswana and Namibia on these issues? The situation in Namibia is quite a bit different for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is that uh, in Botswana, which has favored this villagization model, setting up settlements, having people move into those places, uh, Namibia has had a decentralization trend very similar to what's happened in, in, among Australian Aboriginals going back to the bush. Uh, and that happened uh, over the last 20 years, beginning in about 82, 83, with people leaving Chumque and moving back out into their former uh, traditional territories. And um, so you have now 35 communities spread across an area of about 9,000 square kilometers. Uh, in those communities, they have their own schools. Uh, they're able to, to uh, um, not only practice their own culture and their own language, but they also have the opportunity to be taught in mother tongue uh, languages. School books are being developed by uh, a number of different organizations, Nyai Nyai Development Foundation of Namibia, Calorie People's Fund is working with them, a number of other organizations um, to try and promote 
uh, mother tongue language education. So it's a very different kind of situation in Namibia. I won't say it's much easier that the settlements are, or the communities are relatively similar to those of Botswana. Uh, I will say that there are that one of the major differences is in Botswana, the, the settlements have other people besides San in them. Uh, and so there's uh, some competition for resources, competition for leadership. That's not so much the case in, the, in Namibia, at least in the Nyanya area. It is the case in other communities across Namibia that, in, that have San. Um, but the Nyanya area specifically has got many of the things that most San want. Sufficient land in, uh, in most cases, uh, opportunities for tourism, opportunities for um, making their own decisions about leadership. Um, and development assistance coming from a variety of sources. Do you think there's actually a difference in the intergroup relations in Namibia, whereas in Botswana the relations between the majority Swana people and the San peoples and some other minorities have not always been that smooth. But is there a difference, say, with uh, uh, Awambo peoples or Herero peoples, or are there these oh, similar sorts of stereotypes? I think they're probably similar sorts of stereotypes. I think the, the difference in Namibia, at least in the areas where I've worked, has been that there are, there are relatively small numbers of Obambo or Kavango or Herero, um, but in many cases the relations are, are similar as to what you'd see in Botswana. There's quite a bit of symbiosis between um, San and, and other groups. They work for other groups, they work with other groups in a number of things. There is a feeling in both countries of uh, other groups as their numbers expand moving into their areas to take over land and, and uh, exploit resources and there's, so there's a sense of uh, competition and they're worried about that I think in both, on both sides of the border. If I could shift the uh, discussion just a little bit. Uh, the first image that many people in the West, uh, perhaps most, see, have of the sun comes from uh, the film The Gods Must Be Crazy, where the audience uh, laughs at the sun, right? Um, but your amazing work over the course of, of uh, more than 20 years has shown that actually the sun are uh, group of people that use very modern means to claim sort of traditional rights, for lack of a better expression. Um, they're far from passive. You know, they're, they're local struggles that they're fighting, but they're globally engaged. Um, to me, this, this is fascinating, and, and I'm wondering why was it that international organizations, NGOs, and, and, and famous individuals, and governments, and public opinion um, suddenly gained such interest uh, in the San people and, and got involved with the San social movements, particularly in the 1990s? Well, it's interesting you should mention The Gods Must Be Crazy because that film did do quite a bit to raise awareness of San. Uh, but it was also uh, filmed in 1978 at a time by Jamie Ace, the filmmaker, at a time when the San were being militarized uh, in Namibia by the South African Defense Force. Uh, it was a time when there was a tremendous social change. There were high rates of uh, uh, high death rates and, and uh, uh, low fertility rates, um, all kinds of complications, poverty, um, competition, uh, all uh, kinds of difficulties that we, people were facing, which that film doesn't portray. Uh, John Marshall, when he did his films, uh, one of which is uh, Ngai, the story of a Kung woman, uh, documents the filming of The Gods Must Be Crazy, uh, and then contrasts that with what was going on in the larger arena. And that larger arena included militarization, impoverishment, uh, global pressures, economic and social and political pressures on the San as uh, moving toward the end of apartheid in Namibia. Um, and so 
the images of traditional San hunting and gathering, and that's the image that many anthropologists have, and in fact anthropologists and John, Marsh John Marshall's films have contributed to that notion of, of hunting and gathering as being idyllic life. Uh, many many San in that area would say it's not an idyllic life, that they had to struggle to, uh, to earn a living. So. Um, I think the San have learned a lot of lessons, and some of this is from filmmakers and anthropologists and others, uh, where they uh, feel that they have to engage uh, as much as possible in international struggles. That includes going to court, taking uh, the government to court, both in Botswana, they're planning it on in Namibia, they've done it in South Africa, uh, where things have been settled out of court uh, in favor of the San. Um, they also participate in elections, they, uh, they engage in uh, um, discussions at the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which they're going to do here in May, uh, and, and uh, they, they go to international conferences, the International Indigenous Education Conference recently in Australia. Uh, there were 10 San representatives, they've been to the United States a number of times. They're very much engaged in modern strategies of, uh, of social movements. Uh, at the same time, they're struggling, as you mentioned, locally. Um, and so film has a very interesting way of, of representing people. Uh, the Gods Must Be Crazy represent them as traditional and, and kind of bumbling. Uh, the film work of John Marshall and others has shown them to be very a, engaged and, and by no means passive, very willing to uh, use whatever means possible uh, to, and, and I mean legal means, um, to promote their well-being. And uh, on a different tack, uh, you've also been involved in, uh, in Lesotho as a, a member of the panel of environmental experts for the uh, rather uh, uh, grandiloquently uh, scaled Lesotho Highlands Water Project, the largest water project in Africa. And that's brought you into close consideration of a lot of complex issues to do with environment and development. And, Maybe you, could you give us a, a brief update on that and the issues involved? Yeah, some of it has to do with transboundary water management and transboundary issues, and that includes San in the case of, of Lesotho, which I'll speak to in a minute. But um, the, the real issues there have to do with uh, providing access uh, to water for South Africa, and, and since 1994, with majority rule, uh, much of that water now goes to uh, both urban and rural communities, um, and uh, it provides electricity to Lesotho. Um, those are great benefits. Uh, there's some pretty major costs, and that is uh, hundreds of people have had to be resettled uh, of households. Um, that has had costs. The uh, um, project um, has seen a, a huge increase in HIV-AIDS um, uh, in the, the area where the project has been initiated. This is a health cost of international development projects that needs to be paid attention to by the World Bank and other organizations as well as states like South Africa. Uh, they've just recently signed phase two of the Highlands Water Project and in this case Botswana is talking about being part of the, um, of the equation, uh, getting some of the water, which would be piped from uh, South Africa, in, in, eventually from Lesotho, but piped from South Africa to Botswana and, and uh, put into the dam at uh, Habaroni to provide water for uh, the rapid urban, urban growth of Habaroni. So there are going to be some pretty major implications of the water development uh, in Southern Africa, and it also has to do with power, uh, electric, elect, electrical 
sorry, electrical power, which is critical in South Africa, although none of the, or very little of the power that's being generated in Lesotho is, is uh, put into the South African grid. But overall, there are a whole series of environmental implications of this project. And I will say, if, um, compared to most projects of its size around the world, and this is an $8 billion project, um, the, the Basutu and the South Africans have done a, a really enormously respectable job in terms of trying to deal with both the environmental uh, and the social issues. Uh, it's probably one of the more successful projects, although no, no project involving resettlement goes well uh, in terms of the, the rights and, and well-being of local communities. Uh, in many cases, the people who really benefit are, are non-local. Um, that's a major problem with dams. But I would say that uh, on balance, uh, this project was reasonably well implemented when it comes to the social and environmental dimensions. So many important issues and well thanks so very much for your uh, keen insights into the, the ways in which uh, African indigenous peoples are confronting these. Thanks Bob Hitchcock. Thank you very much. Thank you Bob. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.